Welcome to Cincy Reform Podcast. This is Pastor Brandon, and today we have a special episode for you. At church, we have been in our catechism service going through various topics of ecclesiology, of church, and thinking about the church in various ways. And a few weeks ago, we considered the church as an evangelizing prophet— and we looked for um, at uh, several places in Scripture. We looked at the canons of Dort. And in that sermon, we were considering the church's role in evangelizing. We were considering how the church ordinarily grows and what the church's function and role is. And so I thought that we would present that here in the podcast for you to also be encouraged in the role in which... Christ has given us. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14 of Revelation 11. Again, this is the inerrant, infallible, life-giving Word of God. Verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Believe that out. For it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom. In Egypt, where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have, have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, 
and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And let's now, in your Trinity Psalter hymnals, turn to the Canons of Dort. Canons of Dort, first main point of doctrine, Article 3, on page 897. Canons of Dort, first main point of doctrine, Article 3, regarding the preaching of the gospel. Let's go ahead and read this together. In order that people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message to the people He wishes and at the time He wishes. By this ministry, people are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. For how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they have been sent? All right. So as we continue in our series on the church, today we want to consider the role of the church as an evangelizing prophet. So the church is the evangelizing prophet. As you know, we think about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is proclaiming and he's pointing to this long-awaited Messiah, as many of the, of the older prophets pointed to this long-awaited Messiah, the church now, post-Christ, has an interesting function of pointing back to what Christ has accomplished for us, but also to the future of his, of his return, when He will come to judge the living and the dead. So in this sermon, I would first like to discuss the Reformed tradition, and how we have tradi or typically understood churches evangelization, churches witnessing task, churches proclamation task of, of preaching the good news to sinners. Secondly, I'd like for us to consider how Revelation 11 can help us understand the church's witnessing commission. And finally, I'd like to offer some practical advice as we close. So first, the Reformed tradition um, and how we have have typically understood the church as evangelizing prophet, as uh, having that witnessing commission. And we read in the Canons of Dort, uh, first head of doctrine, Article 3, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it starts off by saying, in order that people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends proclaimers, proclaimers of this very joyful message to, to the people that He wishes and at the time that he wishes. And, of course, this uh, chapter here in the Canons of Dort is discussing God's election, God's unconditional election and predestination, God choosing some sinners for salvation. Neither in Scripture nor in the Reformed Confessions is God's unconditional election 
and the proclamation of the gospel to sinners at odds. They are never at odds. In fact, it is God's election that fuels and adds motivation for us to tell sinners the good news of Jesus Christ. People sometimes ask rather skeptically, well, if God elects people, some people to be saved, then why preach the gospel to them? Why tell them? Why evangelize? And the canons of Dort answers by quoting Scripture. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? And how shall they preach unless they have been sent? God, of course, works through means. The means by which he calls his elect is the telling of the good news by his people. Robert Godfrey, he said, So that sinners may believe, God out of his mercy sends preachers of the gospel of Jesus. The ministry calls people to faith and repentance. He sends preachers to carry the message of salvation. It is a message for all to hear. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations by baptizing, by going, by teaching them the whole counsel of God. Michael Brown said, Christ's disciples are made through the ministry of His ordinary means of grace, word, and sacrament. So as we think about the church's task, as we think about the church as evangelizing prophet, as we think about the witness commission that has been given to the church, it is important, I think, to see how central the preaching of the gospel is. The administration of the sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. This has been God's ordinary way of saving sinners and growing those same people into maturity. The church's task is not flashy, it's not filled with gimmicks, but it's rather ordinary, focused on word and on sacrament. Brown goes on to say, We do not need more movements, more conferences, more celebrities. We do not need the next big thing. What we need is more churches committed to the way disciples have been made since the apostles planted a church in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Slow going, unspectacular, ordinary ministry of word and sacrament. So as we think about what the church has been commissioned to do, as we think about how the Reformed churches have understood that commission, we must acknowledge, I think, up front that the church's mission to evangelize and to make disciples, to be a witness to the surrounding nations and to engage in the work of missions and, be, and send missionaries, all of that is focused quite tightly on the ordinary means of grace, preaching of the Word, baptizing, administering the Lord's Supper. The church order of the URC, Article 47, discusses the church's mission calling. And in that article, it says, 
The church's missionary task is to preach the word of God to the unconverted. When this task is to be performed beyond the field of an organized church, it is to be carried out by ministers of the word set apart for this labor who are called, supported, and supervised by their consistories. But wait a minute, you might be asking. Is the mission of the church, is evangelizing, is making disciples, is that merely and or only a function of ministers of the word? Well, to begin, I do think it is important that we see how, how central the ordinary means of grace are. We should acknowledge that the ordinary means of grace are a central way in which God has grown His church, the church's task of proclaiming the gospel to the lost, and those who carry out the ordinary means of grace are, in fact, the ministers of the Word. And so the church's ordinary pulpit ministry, its ordinary means of proclaiming Christ, is a vital way in which sinners hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But that does not mean, it does not mean that the congregation has no role to play. Far from it. As we are filled on Sunday... As God gives us grace and nourishes us and strengthens us, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we then go out into the world and bless others through service, through speaking truth. In the URC Church Planting Manual, it advises church planters saying, You must train your people to be witnesses for Christ by defending the faith by commending it to others through loving service and by sharing the truth with their neighbors in a winsome manner. The manual goes on to say, If God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4, then His children should share that desire and demonstrate it through compassionate witnessing to the unsaved. So while we, we see within the Reformed tradition that there is a, a, a central and, and key component here focusing on the ordinary means of grace, word, and sacrament as God builds His church ordinarily through those various means, it does not negate in any way a daily witnessing of, by church members to their families, to their neighbors, to their co-workers as they go out on from Monday to Saturday, loving their neighbor by speaking truth and love, by being a great witness in their lives, in their work, by what they say, by their testimony. So now let us turn our attention to Revelation chapter 11 and see what insights that chapter brings for us. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to unpack every piece of chapter 11. I'm sure as I was reading, there's many questions that were being raised. What does this mean? What does that mean? And uh, we're not going to be able to unpack that um, totally. If you want to see that, uh, you'll have to come to my uh, Wednesday fellowship group where we're walking through the book of Revelation. Um, but just a, a few pieces here that, that can help us and orient us. The opening line here, John uh, speaks about he was given a measuring rod to measure the temple, but not the outer court. So there's a measuring of the inner, not the outer. 
The outer is going to be susceptible to being trampled upon by nations, but the inner is going to be totally protected. Um, the idea of measuring is a symbol of protection. It's a symbol of God's presence. So God is present and protecting, and that is this, uh, what this measuring means. The inner court is, you could say, the heavenly temple of which all believers are members. We are members of that heavenly, that heavenly temple. That heavenly temple that is measured. That heavenly temple where God's presence is. That heavenly temple where we are spiritually protected. We are spiritually protected. We are sealed. We are kept from spiritual harm. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. The outer court, there's much debate in what the outer court that's not being measured, where the nations are able to come in and trample, much debate on what that means, but I think that it means the outer court represents the church that is susceptible to harm, the people of God throughout the church age that undergo persecution and martyrdom, and I should say up front that Revelation chapter 11 is not merely speaking about future events. Uh, and this is a, a much broader uh, conversation about the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation understands that the end times began when Jesus died, rose, and ascended. Jesus died, rose, and ascended, end times began. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls that we read about in Revelation have been going on for 2,000 years. And they will continue to go on and get heightened before Christ's return. And so as we enter Revelation 11 and we're hearing about the, the measuring, the protection, uh, we're reading about events that, that, are, that have been going on for 2,000 years and will continue to, to, to do so. And so there is this protection of the inner temple, the heavenly temple. We are all members of it. But the outer court is susceptible to suffering to persecution, to martyrdom, and paradoxically in the book of Revelation, sometimes the way in which Christians are victorious is through suffering and dying. And it's through death that the church is victorious. In the same way that Christ was victorious in his own death. So the outer court then undergoes various tribulations uh, the Christians are sealed spiritually, protected in the heavenly temple, even as they go through persecution on the earth. Now in verse 3, he shifts and he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So this was the purpose of the measuring, I think. We, you know, again, measuring connotes the protection of God, the presence of God. By dwelling with the church, God ensures that the church's witness will endure even through persecution. Even as we are persecuted, our witness to the world will endure. But why two witnesses? Why two witnesses? Well, there are many views as to who the two witnesses are, when the two witnesses are coming, what the two witnesses mean. But I think that the two witnesses are symbolic for the entire church, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. The two witnesses 
being symbolic for the entire church between the first and second coming of Christ. Now, why would someone come to that conclusion? I'll give five reasons. There's actually more than that you could give, but here are the five big ones. First one, these two witnesses are referred to as lampstands, which previously referred to the church. The church was called lampstand. Number two, they are to prophesy, which is a function of the entire church to be that to be that evangelizing prophet. Joel 2, uh, 28 to 32, for example. Number three, the beast that makes war on the two witnesses is an allusion to Daniel 7, 21, which speaks of the entire nation of God's people, not just two people. Number four, verses 9 to 13 says the whole world will see their apparent defeat, which makes sense if John is speaking about the worldwide invisible church. And, and, and fifthly, in the book of Revelation, the entire community of Christians is given the task of testifying. We see that over and over again in Revelation 6, Revelation 12, Revelation 17, Revelation 19, Revelation 20. The church testifies. The church is this witness, this prophetic witness to a fallen and dark world. But why, why two? Why would they say two witnesses to refer to the entire church? Well, one, the Old Testament required two witnesses to establish an offense against the, the law. There had to be two witnesses to establish an offense. Number two, Jesus used the same principle of twos when he sent out his disciples in groups of two. And three, only two of the seven churches in chapters two and three were faithful, requiring no rebuke representing the faithful remnant of churches. So those are a few reasons given why we can read Revelation 11 and understand that this is symbolic for the church that is given this prophetic stance and posture of proclaiming Christ through not only speaking the truth in love, but in our lives and even to the point of death, giving up our lives. So in Revelation 11, John sees this church, again, as a prophetic witness to the surrounding culture. And this has been going on, as I said, from the first to second coming of Christ. I think G.K. Beale said it best. He said, Revelation 11, verses 1 to 13, shows that the church is sealed for bearing, for bearing an enduring and loyal witness to the gospel which brings to lay a basis for the final judgment of those rejecting their testimony. The message is that of judgment upon those who reject the preserving witness of Christians and who persecute them. So here in Revelation 11, we are seeing the church as this prophetic voice to darkness that's telling them of judgment to come, that's telling them of the punishment of sin, but that's telling them that they can be forgiven in Christ. That in Christ there is hope, in Christ there is a complete forgiveness of, of sin. In Christ they can live forever with God. And so as the church is this prophetic uh, posture to a dark world, 
Revelation 11 is sobering in that it points to also persecution. We um, might not be killed in this country for speaking about Christ, but we could be marginalized. We could be canceled. We could be um, not promoted in a job. We could, be, uh, we could lose friends. I mean, there's various ways in which we could be persecuted. But again, uh, that is the task that the church is called to, to be that light shining in a realm of darkness. So as we close, let us consider some practical points about the church as evangelizing prophet. How should we think about even our mission here as, as we are members of Westside Reformed Church? What has Christ commissioned us to do? Well, we have been commissioned, haven't we, to focus on the ordinary means of grace, word and sacrament. In fact, in... Um, Acts chapter 2, it speaks about the early church and how they were devoted, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to fellowship. They were devoted to these things. And that Greek word there, devoted, can also mean busied with. This is what they were busied with, what they were devoted to, what they were focused on. Ordinary means of grace, word and sacrament, being people of prayer, people of fellowship being a faithful witness to Christ. And while the ordinary way of growing Christ's church has been word and sacrament focused, the lay witnessing of the congregation, speaking the truth in love, has been so important in the building of Christ's church. R. Scott Clark rightly said, We fear oftentimes rejection and criticism and other possible consequences by, by witnessing about Christ. But he says, but give, but give a witness we must. The need to witness has not changed. The truth of Christ has not changed. Throughout the history of the church, there again we see Revelation 11, this faithful prophet proclaiming in darkness in the first century, second century, third century, all the way up till today, the 21st century, the need to proclaim that message in darkness has not ceased and that message has not changed. Even as we fear rejection and criticism and other consequences. We also fear some we also fear sometimes about witnessing because we think maybe it's complicated. Maybe I don't know what to say. R. Scott Clark says, well, witnessing can be very simple. It can be very simple. We don't need various gimmicks and, and, and programs. I, I can recall going to one church's evangelism program, and I was going to go out and help them evangelize. And they said, were you trained in a certain program? And I said, no. I never went through that particular program. I went to other programs. They said, you can't, you can't go with us. You don't know that program. And I thought, how complicated is it to, to bring my Bible over to a lost sinner and say Christ died for sin? The punishment for sin is death. But Christ has died for sin, and if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. I mean, how, how complicated do we have to get? How, how gimmicky do we have to be? The message need not be elaborate. The gospel message is simple, that children can grasp the content of the gospel message. We can speak the gospel message to others. 
And when we tell others about the gospel, we should not stress ourselves out trying to act like the Holy Spirit. Our job as we give the gospel is not to reach into the person and, and transform their heart. That's, that's, that's way too much. That's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to be faithful, to give the simple gospel message, to pray that the Spirit will uh, see fit to use that message to transform their lives. So we cannot convert anyone, but we should be faithful in sharing that good news. And when we realize that the gospel message is simple, when we realize that we are not the Holy Spirit, we are not called to change hearts, the task of being a faithful witness seems less daunting. And so let us take up the charge, trusting in the Holy Spirit to, to share the message of Christ to those who dwell on the earth. And this is our task. This is our, our posture toward a fallen world. This is what Christ has called us to do. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I think he had the idea when he said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Friends, the church is evangelizing prophet because hell is real, because salvation is open to those who will believe in Christ and trust in Christ and repent of sin, and because God is delaying His wrath until the fullness of the elect come in. So let us be motivated, therefore, to call, to beckon, to persuade, to plead with those in darkness. Amen.